the creek is probably rising, but it's so low that we're not worried about how high it's going to get. Yes, thank you for all of you who ask and who pray. Uh, we live in a floodplain, and we've had water in our basement before, so it's uh, always interesting when we get lots of rain. For those of you who requested it, I will be doing a cartwheel. So if you, if you wanted to get your phones out, this would be the time. My wife. Okay, here we go. We ready? Okay, cartwheel. Now we can preach. Okay. <laughs> Me in the kitchen is something of an adventure. <clears throat> I will tell you about one of my infamous, because I have several infamous uh, adventures there. I was making smoothies for our children, and I thought, we'll be healthy, right? We'll put something green in them. There are a lot of green food items in the kitchen. I decided... <laughs> I decided to put peas, frozen, yeah, frozen peas in the smoothie. Mm, even Bo wouldn't eat it. He refused. And the rest of my kids were like, what the heck is that? Dad, what did you put in here? Well, we didn't starve, obviously, but my wife in the kitchen is a different story. Amy is fearless in the kitchen. She's very determined and thorough. When the recipe says it has to be this ingredient, she will search every cabinet all through both freezers. She will go on the internet. She, she will find whatever it is and put it in, or else we do a different recipe. And I'm like, couldn't we substitute something? Couldn't we maybe skip it? Let's compromise. Let's make this easy. Let's make it simple because for me, it has to be easy and simple because I don't have kitchen skills, at least not with the food. But when Amy's doing it, it gets done the right way. And I may roll my eyes and mutter about stubbornness, but I'm always pleased with the first bite and always satisfied with the last one. Thanks, baby. If it were up to me, we would eat more conveniently, less healthily, and less adventurously and probably less food overall because only Bo would want to try some of what I come up with. <laughs> so in the Gospels, we have some important stories about food. First one I'm going to touch on is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. I'm sure most of you know the story. 5,000 men, besides women and children, were on a hillside with Jesus and his disciples, and they'd been there a while, and Jesus got concerned about them because he is concerned about things like food. Sometimes we forget that. We think, oh, he's only concerned about spiritual things, but he's not. He knows how our bodies and minds affect our spirits. He made us that way. So he says to his disciples, why don't you guys give them something to eat? And, of course, the disciples are, what do you have? I don't know. I just got some gum. What do you have? Got a tic-tac. We got five loaves and two fish from this very generous boy who decided to share it, but what is that among so many? What is that indeed? 
The boy who brought the food likely didn't even, even catch the fish and didn't make the bread. Probably didn't harvest the wheat that was used to make the bread. So the boy can't hardly take any credit here, can he? All he did was offer what someone else gave to him, which wasn't much. His family had done the work to make that food, so it was a gift to him that he was offering, not anything of his own. And we are the same. What can we offer God that was not given to us by him or by others? And Jesus takes our crumbs, our measly little nothing, and makes it more than we ever could on our own. Now, it would have been just as miraculous if those five loaves and two fish had fed just the 12 disciples. Do the math. You've got five loaves and two fish divided among 12 people, and that's if Jesus doesn't eat. That ain't much. Those of you with kids, do you remember finishing off your children's sandwiches? Mm-hmm, yep. Sometimes you are grateful for those last two bites, aren't you? Because you didn't get yours. <laughs> I remember those days. If Jesus had taken the five loaves and two fish and fed 100 people, it would have been just as miraculous. But I think God was making an important statement in the hearts of everybody who witnessed this event. His resources are endless. He doesn't get used up. It's kind of like that thing where at uh, Christmas time, you ever go to a candlelight service? They start lighting candles at both ends and everybody starts passing it on. The flame doesn't diminish by the sharing, does it? Jesus' resources don't diminish by the sharing. His love doesn't diminish with the sharing. 5,000 men plus women and children. Probably a few teenage boys in there too. Hey, can I have yours? You done with that? Not even the teenage boys went hungry. Remember how your tummy feels after Thanksgiving? Where you're like, if I even think about food, I'm going to groan in pain. (sighs) Because you've stuffed so much good stuff in there. What I find interesting about this is that I just uh, recently read Exodus chapter 16, in which it was shown to me that this is not the first time God has created food in a wilderness place to feed a large number of people. He fed approximately 5 million Jews for 40 years on manna, quail, water from the rock. This is chump change for God. 5,000? Watch this. 12 baskets. Leftovers. Leftovers. You know there was some Jewish mama going, pick that up. Leftovers, 5,000 men from nothing. Hey, kid, you going to eat those last two bites? 
That's what we're talking about. 5,000. Stuffed to the gills. 12 baskets of stuff nobody was willing to eat because they had no room in their stomachs. Kind of makes you ashamed of every time you've ever worried about God providing, doesn't it? Hmm. Multiple generations of the Israelites that came into the promised land, their own bodies were living proof that God provided because they hadn't eaten anything else for 40 years. Six days a week, man. All right, kids, everybody up. Go out and gather the manna. Oh, Dad, you want to eat? Okay. Their very bodies are proof. So when that God has to feed a mere 5,000 men, is he worried? No. We shouldn't be either. We forget, though, don't we? Our brains leak. We need reminding. Next parable, the paralyzed man. This is from Matthew, I'm sorry, from Mark 2 and Luke 5. This one's really interesting to me because the man himself has nothing to offer. His body is broken. It doesn't work. He can't get to Jesus on his own. But he has these friends, adventurous friends, sacrificing friends, who decide they're going to take the day off and just cart this buddy of theirs over to where Jesus is, see if Jesus can heal it. But they can't get in. Too many people. They're like, we came all this way. One of them gets an idea. They decide to vandalize somebody else's house. They break through the roof. I'm wondering if they thought about what would happen after. Like if maybe they'd be asked to repair it again or something. I don't know. The Bible doesn't record that. But they let him down right in front of Jesus. Think of the audacity here. These friends are like, no, man, we walked all this way. We are not going home with you on a bed. You are too heavy. You are getting healed today. Now, how are we going to do it? And Jesus looks up. He sees, and, and he doesn't get mad at being interrupted. <sighs> There's a lesson there. He doesn't, doesn't get mad that they broke through the roof. <clears throat> He doesn't chastise them for any of that. He doesn't say that the man needs to have more faith. He hardly addresses the man's faith at all. Because the Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the man's friends. Similar situation when the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was paralyzed or the centurion whose servant was paralyzed, this daughter and the servant couldn't come. But someone who loved them came for them. And Jesus honored that. He saw their faith. He saw their faith. The man didn't make a request. He didn't have anything to recommend him. And it didn't matter. Jesus healed him anyway. 
and those friends that hauled him there and hauled him up on the roof and broke through the roof and probably had to repair it afterwards. Probably slept well that night. And of course, they didn't have to haul their friend home. In fact, they probably had a hard time keeping up with him. Then there's the story of Lazarus from John 11. Mary and Martha in deep grief have nothing to offer Jesus except their wish that he would have come sooner. You can just see them in their Jewish way. If you would only come, but I know you know best. They even try to prevent him from rolling the stone away. No, 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 he stinks. It's been four days. You, you, don't, you don't want to do that. All that can be offered to the Savior of the world is a rotting, stinking corpse. It doesn't even slow Jesus down. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He doesn't blink. He does the impossible right there in front of him. Lazarus, come forth. You're done. And the lives of everyone who witnessed it totally transformed. All the rules, all the finality, all the absolutes that were solid in their lives are suddenly flipped on their heads. And for the rest of their lives, none of that's going to be the same for them. All the rules and limits, the heartache, the rituals associated with the finality of death instantly and irrevocably altered. The pain and the permanence of death undone right before their eyes. I can only imagine how over the next days and weeks the sisters shook their heads in disbelief as they looked at each other and looked at their brother and probably laughed in shock. And at some point, down the line, they had to do it all again. (laughs) Only God knows what it was like for Lazarus himself. You might want to look up the song Lazarus Come Forth by the late Carmen Licciardello. We bring next to nothing or worse than nothing to God in our need. Even what we do bring represents a community of fellowship and the great efforts of many others. And yet, apart from any real help from us, Jesus feeds a multitude, heals the helpless, raises the dead, all to his glory. That is the body of Christ operating as it was meant to operate. He acts and we respond. And the world begins to understand something of the great God who loves this whole broken world so much that he sacrificed his son in our place. And how we are to respond to him even though we have nothing. And this is what happens every time we do VBS. Right? We all show up. None of us can do it all. Some of us are worried we'll be able to do the little bit we've got. We're not sure who's going to be the helper for this or how many people are going to be there for that or did we get that one decoration fixed where it was falling down before? Thank you, Tom. Where's Tom? Thank you for fixing that ridiculous cardboard train back there in the corner that we fixed and then you had to fix it again. That thing was, golly, we should have burned it. But (laughs) We come with nothing some crepe paper and staples. 
A couple of ideas for a skit. Some dance moves. That's all we got. Cartwheels, yeah. That's all we got. By themselves, next to nothing. Five loaves, two fish. But look what God does with it. Each of us planting, each of us watering in our own way. Different skills, different amounts, different timing, different flavor. And God makes the life grow, doesn't he? Every time. And every time we're a little surprised, aren't we? We shouldn't be, but we are because we leak. We forget about things like manna for 40 years. I need to thank my house church. This last week, um, Wednesday was a very hard day emotionally for us. We still were not completely recovered from VBS week. And a lot of little things that by themselves wouldn't have been that big a deal, but they all kind of piled up and we just got kind of overwhelmed. And so we got on the house church hotline, sent out a prayer request, and boy, you guys jumped right on it. By the end of the day, none of the problems had changed, but our attitudes had. We were happy again. We were at peace again. We enjoyed each other again. That's what God does. That's how he does it. The same spirit working in all and through all. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about that body of Christ analogy. None of us is the same. We're all kind of funny looking, right? I mean, we are. We look at each other and we're like, it's a different look than I would do. That's important. We're supposed to be different from each other, aren't we? If we were all the same, what a boring church this would be. Good thing God likes to make things a little spicy. (laughs) All right, I'm going to show you a clip, I think, that ties into my next point. All right, this is a team kicking a field goal that fell short. The other team caught it, and whoop, off we go. Give me a hand, give me a hand, give me a hand. Yep, boom, there's one. Boom, there's another one. Boom, there's another one. Boom, there's another one. Oh, oh, he could go all the way. Look at him go. Isn't that cool? That's a team right there. That's teammates helping each other out. That is what it's like when you pray for each other. Just like that. All those teammates hustling down the field, not carrying the ball, but knocking holes for the one who is. That's us. That's the body of Christ. That's what we do for each other. And it's a good excuse to watch football. All right. Three important relationships we need to remember. The first one we've shown a a picture of. This community is protection against the world. The world is not a nice place. 
You have to hold hands and look both ways when you cross the street. Don't talk to strangers. Don't take candy from strangers. Don't give out your phone number. Be careful where you go on the internet. There's pitfalls out there. Driven by our enemy, the world seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. It hates beauty. It hates truth. It hates faithfulness. It takes away and doesn't replenish. It isolates fractures and dishonors without shame or regret. It revels in its ungodliness. Now, our community brings together very different people worn down by just such a world. We come together in need, in fear, in guilt, in doubt, in despair, in pain, in loneliness, in confusion, and in exhaustion. And we sometimes feel unable to meet the needs in those that we love the most. But in our community, we're not alone. We are more than the sum of our parts. Because our community is nourished by the Spirit of God himself, giving life to us all and strength to help bear each other's burdens. That same God who fed 5 million on manna for 40 years, who fed 5,000 on a lunch, who raises people from the dead, who heals incurable diseases, that's the God that sustains us. Second relationship, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is protection against our flesh. Our flesh wants to eat. Feed me. But it's never satisfied, is it? So a comedian who was talking about his teenage son they had just gone to an all-you-can-eat buffet. They got home. First thing does is go to the fridge. He's like, we just stuffed you with all the food we could afford. Are you... Do you ever get full? Son says, no, but sometimes I get tired of chewing. (laughs) That's our flesh, right? Never enough. Jesus, by contrast, had his disciples feed the multitude first. You've got to know his disciples were hungry too. But he had them feed the multitude first and gather up the leftovers. Christ's example is a constant death to the flesh, taking up of the cross so that we can put our flesh to death as often as we must. Our flesh worships itself, so it cannot cooperate with our spirit or God's. We introduced the poison of sin into this equation. And now our flesh wars against our spirit, seeking to displace God as the one on the throne. But after submitting to Christ's lordship, And seeking his forgiveness, we become new creatures and the tables turn. God's word gives us the will to overcome our flesh. And his spirit enables, equips, and energizes us to subdue our body's desires, our short-sighted impulses, and our feelings that act like three-year-olds. We need not, and indeed should not, act from slavery to our flesh. We have the power that raised Jesus from the dead inside of us. Jesus' power pulls us through, right? From VBS? Trust Jesus, yeah. He is the one who knew no sin. We have power to do right. Power to overcome the natural, 
normal, common impulses to do wrong. Third relationship. We need a relationship with God himself as protection against the enemy. It's more than just going to church. It's more than just reading your Bible. Those are good things, and we should do them, but we need to be connecting with God himself. Our enemy seeks to discourage us and dupe us into believing that God isn't so great after all. He just wants us to suffer. He's a meanie. We cannot distinguish the counterfeit until we have seen the original. We cannot reject the false unless we are intimately familiar with that, which is true. Satan has found great success in tempting us to ignore him completely or become infatuated with his values. Power, self-satisfaction, pride. Both of these two errors leave us vulnerable to his cunning schemes. So we have to maintain our conversation with the Lord and a focus on our Lord's character to avoid the slippery slopes of our enemy's traps. In addition to safety, we will become more like God the more time we spend with him. Think about the people you know who are the most godly people. They spend time with God. They've been through some hard things with God. That's what it takes. That's what Jesus did. We will become transformed and begin to reflect in a small way God's power, wisdom, love, and kindness, and consistency. God's faithfulness through time and pressure, through temptation and provocation, is what distinguishes him from anyone else the world has ever known. All the other leaders and prophets of this world have failed to maintain the standards of behavior they aspire to or expect from others. We fail. Our enemy was the first to fail. None have passed this test but God himself in human form. And this unmistakable characteristic of self-sacrificing faithfulness is what will surprise the world, frustrate our enemy, and bless those we love. It's vital. I think it's the most superhuman aspect of God's rescue story because it's the part we would not make up. We would never create a rescue story that involved our own shame as a race. We like ourselves too much. We would never in our human nature embrace a hero that called us to repent and die in order to gain life. But God's way works every time it's tried. going to tell you a story about my mother-in-law, Charlene. She's an amazing cook, really. If you've ever eaten her food, you know. She makes good stuff. And I was thinking about food, obviously, <laughs> from previous references, and I was thinking, you know, you, you only enjoy food when all the parts come together. You don't enjoy all the parts separately, Right? You ever made a sandwich for a child and watched the child very carefully undo the sandwich and eat all the parts one at a time? <laughs> You're like, golly, kid, I could have... Uh, anyway. Charlene makes a lasagna that's just, oh, it's mouth-watering. Once you taste it, you won't forget it. So good. I'm tasting it right now. Anyway, if you were to take the ingredients of the lasagna separately and eat them, 
you'd have a miserable experience. Noodles by themselves. <coughs> no thanks. Boiling water by itself. No. Salt? Meat? Even if it's cooked without all the spices, you're like, eh. Even cheese by itself doesn't come close to the experience you get with everything in the lasagna together. Now you could, once you get your helping of lasagna, you could pick out the noodle or the meat or whatever, but why? It's so much better altogether. A can of crushed tomatoes is no one's idea of a snack. And the heat of the oven by itself would cause pain and possibly death if ingested. That's a weird picture. But when prepared properly, with years of practice, perfect timing and the right amounts, the right arrangement and structure, oh, what a treat. Nothing like it. And you can't even describe it properly. You just have to taste it and see that the Lord is so good. That picture is how we work with God and how we work with each other. Each flavor at the proper time, proper amount, the proper preparation, and wow. And we eat, and it's gone, and we want more, but we have to wait till the next time, letting our feast nourish us until then. God knows when we need more. He has more feasts planned. The Israelites in the wilderness needed water every so often, and God gave them water every so often, just when they needed it. They weren't very good at waiting for it. Hey, God! Hey, Moses! <laughs> We're thirsty here. Come on! I got a schedule to keep. My goat's got a drink. That's us, isn't it? We start looking at the clock instead of looking at God. We start looking at the waves instead of the one walking on them. We start looking at the size of the lunch instead of the Savior who asks for it. But we see that we have a part to play in this. Jesus wanted his disciples involved with the feeding of the 5,000. But not because they had all the food. We are to show up and be ready to follow. To allow God to prepare us for our part. To bear witness to the truth we know. All the while we trust God to bring others together with us to provide for our needs and theirs, and to guide us in the decisions as we seek him. It's a great verse that puts God's part and our part together in a puzzling but not surprising way. It's Philippians 2, 12, and 13, where it talks about, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which sounds like it's all on us. And the next verse says, for it is God who works in you both to do will and to do his good will, which sounds like it's all God. It's a both and just like the lasagna. If you were to say, well, the lasagna is noodles. Well, it is, but it's more than that. The lasagna is meat and cheese. Well, it is, but it's more than that. Lasagna is spices. Well, it is, but... And even the, with the lasagna, you could, if you were careful enough, separate things out. But with God and people, you can't really... Once God's inside you, trying to separate what God does and what we do, 
It's not so easy. The disciples, when they were feeding the 5,000, where was it that the other food came from? When did it appear? Did it appear in the disciples' hand? Did it appear in Jesus' hand? The Bible doesn't say. It just says Jesus broke it, gave it to the disciples, and the disciples gave it to the people, and somewhere in there was where the more came from. Somewhere. It's probably good that we don't know where, because what would we do if we did? <laughs> We'd try to market it, wouldn't we? Put it in a bottle, sell it! Crank that puppy out, let's go. It's not the point. The bread and the fish are not the point. Jesus had to tell the crowds this. Don't labor for the food that perishes. It's not the point. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Come to me and you won't hunger. I don't really care what's in the lasagna. I don't care how it's put together. I mean, it's interesting, but I don't need to know. Once I take a bite of it, keep your secrets. I'm, I'm good. Just, just feed me the lasagna. <laughs> and after walking with God, sometimes it is easier to say, okay, I didn't get lasagna this time, but I know you've got some lasagnas planned down the road, so I can wait. I trust you, Lord. Sometimes we can do that. Sometimes we're hopping up and down and screaming, I want lasagna! And God says, sit down, kid. When I was a young lad, I had a similar situation. I was super hungry. I know it's hard to believe, but my mom was cooking rice, and I was hungry, and I threw a fit, and she said, okay, have some rice. Crunch, crunch, crunch. I'm like, this doesn't taste like rice. She said, it's not cooked. It's not ready. Right now, this is what there is. You want to wait a little bit? There might be something different. But if you absolutely have to put something in your mouth now, this is what you get. Enjoy. <laughs> I learned a lesson that day. I've had to learn it again several times, but... God's timing is always perfect. Can I get an amen? We have to learn that again sometimes, don't we? I've talked before about the difficulties I have um, selecting peanut butter in the store because I get distracted so easily and my filter gets tired. Does your filter get tired? I'm glad I don't have cable. I, I don't want satellite TV because if I ever sat down to try to find something to watch, two hours later I'd, I'd have a piece of paper with notes on it and still be flipping channels. What kind of peanut butter? Let's see, do I want the almond? Do I want soy? Do I want no oil, more oil? Do I want the organic, the all-natural, the pre-mixed, the with jelly, the... There are so many preachers and books and seminars and podcasts and channels 
and TV shows. Heck, we got reruns of TV shows with Christian teaching. CDs, cassettes. Remember cassettes? We got seminars. We got retreats. We got Mardell. I love Mardell, but don't give me a credit card and send me in because I'll spend money. (laughs) And there's more to spend it on. You can't read it all, watch it all, listen to it all, can you? It's overwhelming. Sometimes being a Christian in this country can be very confusing. But it doesn't have to be. We have a guide. We have an example. We have a companion to lead us if we will follow him. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, told us what to focus on, and that focus is the same for us today as it was for the disciples years ago and all the saints in between. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. For your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And these are the things that all the pagans run after. So don't be like them. Don't be desperate. Don't be impatient. Don't be jumping up and down and screaming for rice. God knows. He's got lasagna planned. Keep your fork. There's probably dessert too. Seek first his kingdom. He'll he'll help you pick out the things you don't need too. My wife and I talk about throwing out the junk mail. You go to the mailbox, take out stuff. Let's see, that's a credit card offer. That's some ad for something for somebody much older than me. I get AARP stuff. Should I be worried? (laughs) Some of that's important, right? But some of it's really about as unimportant as anything can be in your life. If you could just look in and then point at it and have it disappear, that would be ideal. Or have it not even show up. Better. Holy Spirit's there to help us with that stuff. Help us to know what to chuck, what to store on the shelf for later, what to dive into right now. Because there's different seasons, aren't there? There was a time where Jesus fed the multitudes on the hillside, but he didn't follow them around feeding them every day. There was a period of 40 years where the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, and by the way, that was punishment for them, and God provided manna in their punishment. But after those 40 years, he took them into the promised land and there weren't no more manna, no mo. Because they were in a land flowing with something more. So simple, right? So comforting. So difficult for our human nature to live dependent and vulnerable. If we seek him and his will... We will have all we need to do what he wants. No matter how few fish we bring to the mission, no matter how sinful or paralyzed or dead the man is, God's not stopped or even bothered in the fulfillment of his purposes. So we shouldn't be bothered either. How many stories do we know of missionaries, foreign and domestic, 
who simply refused to stop trying and eventually were able to accomplish what God had. Hear yet another parable. Parable of the persistent widow from Luke chapter 18. There was a judge who did not fear God or man. There probably still are. But this particular one was the only one that could help a widow. And this woman was determined. Hence the name, persistent. She kept calling on him, kept begging him, give me justice. Do what you need to do. You're the only one who can. And I love, <laughs> I love his muttering. He's like, God, this woman is wearing me out. I love how he says to himself, though I do not fear God or fear man, this woman's going to make my life miserable if I don't do something to get her off my back. He realizes that in practical terms, this is a contest of determination of the will. Which side is most determined to do all the sacrificing required to achieve the goal? Jesus is willing. He proved it every day of his life and especially at Calvary. Are we willing to take up our daily cross and follow him, to bring our loaves and fish, to break through the roof, to roll away the stone after four days in order to be a good and faithful servant? So what's the takeaway here? First, we fall short and so what? Satan loves to give you the first half of that. You're not enough. You can't do it. You might fail. You fell short last time. And the answer is, so what? It's not about me. I didn't write the Bible. I didn't make this up. This ain't my rodeo. I'm just one of the clowns doing cartwheels. God doesn't fall short. He's the one driving this. He's the head. He's the one from whom all life and wisdom and power comes. So it doesn't matter that we fall short. We should try to do as well as we can, of course, but we realize that we're not perfect and we're not going to be, but that God in us will be. Our own inadequacy need not cause us to pause for a moment of doubt. It is his supply that will meet our needs. Secondly, others in our community are there for our benefit and the fulfillment of God's purposes. Therefore, we should be grateful for each other and cultivate a teachable spirit. Anyone in here know everything yet? Good. Neither do I. We can talk. We can teach each other some things. We have to resist the urge to separate the ingredients in the dish God is preparing and only take the ones we think we like. Each ingredient has its own timing, its own amount, its own preparation. We all need each other's seasoning. Which leads to the third one. Don't go alone. We're not alone. We don't have to act like we're alone. We can ask for help. Get on the house church hotline. That's what it's there for. We have to fight sometimes to maintain our connection to God and to each other. Because it's important. We're meant to heal and strengthen and encourage one another. 
that he who planted and he who watered may rejoice together over the harvest. And last, we must be armed for battle. Now, usually when you hear the phrase armed for battle, we think only of weapons and metal armor. Well, you need some of that. But that's not all you need. Soldiers who go into battle don't just take weapons and helmets. What else do they take? Most of them have a canteen, right? Flashlight, pocket knife, sleeping bag, and medical supplies. Primarily for themselves, but if you meet a fellow soldier who's wounded, and you've got some gear, break it out, man. That's what it's for. We do have to get used to the idea that life will have confrontations put us in uncomfortable and awkward situations and provoke the envy, fear, and sometimes violent anger of those who don't understand and of those who understand and don't agree. Yet in the midst of battle, we must be prepared also to turn from warrior to medic in an instant. When we see past the fault to the need, when God shows us the hurt inside someone else, when we sense our comrades are discouraged or overcome, we need to have encouragement and love ready to administer. Proper gear includes both weapons and first aid, not just for ourselves, but for others. When we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he will add to us all that we need, including weapons and bandages and ointment. Because what we need is sometimes just what someone else will need. Maybe it's a few loaves to share. Maybe it's roof-climbing skills. Or maybe it's just grief. God knows better than we do. He'll use what we have and what he provides to do the miraculous and the impossible. All we can do is marvel at his grace and power that would use our poor little flavor to season a magnificent dish. So if you come to my house, you'll eat my wife's cooking. So don't worry. In God's house... You eat his cooking. And there's none better in all the universe. So come, eat the bread of life. It comes down from the Father. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Be filled always. And give to the multitudes in your life. There may be leftovers after everyone is stuffed. Even if you can't make Charlene's lasagna. Thank you, James. Let's stand together as we prepare to close. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the truth of your word. We're grateful, Father, for the realities that James spoke of. We're grateful, Father, that we can rely on you and depend on you and not on ourselves. We thank you, Father, that you mix us all together and you allow us to be made into one body. Father, even though we're all different, and all sometimes weird, Lord. We're grateful that you've put us together and that you choose to use us in this way. So we ask now, Heavenly Father, as we go, that we would ponder these things, we would take them with us, and we'd apply these things to our lives, that we would indeed seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that everything else will take care of itself as we do these things. Thank you, Father, for your spirit that guides us and leads us and shapes us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen.